Hey, be seated, church family. Man, thank you, worship team, for bringing us here to the presence of God. Joshua, for leading us in the Lord's Supper. And Pastor Jeremy, for preparing us. Um, man, what a, what a great time to be here tonight on Good Friday with you all. It feels different being here in the evening, doesn't it? I got to make sure I don't say good morning or morning or something like that to you guys. Man, Good Friday, it is, it is a, a wonderful thing, as Pastor Jeremy was sharing with us. Why do we call such a terrible Friday good? And that is the, the great irony of the Christian faith, that something as horrible as what we're celebrating today is something we see is so good. And today what I want to do is give you a presentation of why we call it good. What's so wonderful about it? Our entire Christian faith hinges on what Jesus accomplished on Friday, then Saturday, and ultimately on Sunday. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty sweet. As you guys know, Erica and I uh, were in Israel this past January. And uh, just singing this, thinking about this, has brought it just to fresh eyes to me. And I hope I can even portray some of that to you. Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples on Thursday night. It was Thursday night when he had his meal with his disciples. And it was on Thursday night when he said, somebody at this table is going to betray me. Not long after that, Judas left the table, got his 30 pieces of, of silver, and found a way to get Jesus turned in. After dinner Thursday night, Jesus began to teach his disciples in what we know as the upper room discourse. And then what it says is, there in Jerusalem, he is in this building. We went to this place while Erica and I were there. That was, the tradition says, was the upper room. But Jesus leaves that place in Jerusalem, the city, on Thursday night. And he leaves the city of Jerusalem and walks across this valley called the Kidron Valley. And it's just outside about a 20-minute walk from where Jesus was having the Last Supper. And in the Kidron Valley across on the other side is this place called the Mount of Olives. And what it is is a little hill filled with olive trees. And on this mountain, you can overlook the entire city of Jerusalem. And when you get to the base of the mountain, there's a garden there. And the garden is known to be the Garden of Gethsemane. It's this garden where Jesus spends his last hours as a free man with his, a few of his disciples. It's that garden is time there that I want to talk to you guys about today. The Garden of Gethsemane. The book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we see in the garden is this crazy truth. That as the way to the cross drew nearer, the weight of the cross grew heavier for Jesus. As the way to the cross drew nearer, as he knew the crucifixion approached, the weight of what was there got heavier on Jesus' shoulders until kind of the climax of that weight takes place in this secluded garden at the base of the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to read for you what Luke says in the Garden of Gethsemane. As I mentioned, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the garden, and each of them has the same essence, the same substance, but all of them look at it from a different angle, kind of like an event that takes place 
If you're sitting at one area of the event, you see it through one angle. And if you're sitting across on the other side, you see it from another angle. And your descriptions may have some differences, but the substance is the same. And that's the case with the Garden of Gethsemane. And we find that in the book of Luke. Would you turn there to the book of Luke, chapter 22? Now, the Bible is divided into two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament starts with the book of Matthew, and then Mark, and then Luke, and John. Those four books share with us the life of Jesus. Today, we're going to talk from the book of Luke, chapter 22. And I'm going to invite you, if you can, to stand with me as I read the passage from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 and following. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Would you rise to your feet with me as I read God's word? And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to ask God to do something sweet in our hearts. All right. Here we go. This is after the Lord's Supper. It says, He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And this is what he prayed. Could you read this prayer along with me? I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And this is what it says. Let's read together. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What a famous prayer. And the verse 43 says, it says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, can you say agony? Agony. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray together, family. God, I know that you, uh, you want to tell us something today, Lord, on this Good Friday. You want us to see why this miserable day is so good. God, you want us to see the angst, the agony that Jesus experienced in that garden. And Lord, I pray that all of us would be awakened tonight, Lord that we would not be found asleep when the battle waged on. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us would see the compelling truths of Jesus' final moments before his crucifixion, and that, God, from there you would catapult us into a passionate following of Jesus until we die. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, family. This is a beautiful story because it gives us a picture into what's going on in Jesus' heart before his arrest. As it started out, as I read here, it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Now, I need to give us some context so we can really appreciate what's going on in the disciples' hearts as we come to the end of this story a little bit later. The disciples are feeling likely two things. They were physically exhausted and emotionally exhausted at this point. They were physically exhausted because they just had the last supper with Jesus. They had dinner with him. 
And as part of their dinner, there's probably a heavy meal. They ate, they drank, they enjoyed themselves. But if they're like me, I'm like pretty no good after eating a meal. I just, I, I, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, and maybe you're like that, especially if it's late at night. And then after their meal, Jesus took time to teach them pretty extensively. He talked about him being the vine, and them being the branches, and them remaining in him. He talked about um, the, the, God's prayer for people. He talked about them being one, about the Holy Spirit. He taught them for a long time. And then after eating dinner and then teaching them, he takes them on a walk, about a 20 to 30 minute walk, down into a valley. So they walk downhill into the valley and into this Mount of Olives. And by this time, the disciples, we don't know what time of the day it is. It is probably approaching midnight by this time. Maybe even one in the morning. They are physically exhausted. But at the end of the story, it says they were exhausted because of sorrow. So, okay, what were they sad about? Why were they so sorrowful? Because it's one thing to be tired. It's one thing to be emotionally tired. You know what I mean? There's a different kind of exhaustion when you've done some crying. There's a different kind of fatigue when you've been anxious. And there were a number of things that were taking place in the disciples' lives. First of all, Jesus had been talking about the fact that he was going to be killed. He had been doing this for some time over the last three years. But then this statement in Luke chapter 18 was no doubt echoing in their minds. It says, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man, that's referring to himself by the prophets, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, the disciples were a little slow of hearing because Jesus made things very plain to them. But again, like us, sometimes we're missing the details. But one thing they knew was for sure, Jesus said, when I go into Jerusalem, there I'll be arrested and killed. And whether or not that all computed in their minds the same way, they knew something tragic was at hand. In fact, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding a donkey, he gets in and people are, are praising him. But he also fe- they also felt the tension, no doubt. They were, the, the religious leaders were looking for ways to kill Jesus. And so the disciples are seeing the one that they've been following for three years, entering the city that he said was going to arrest and kill him, knowing that the people around him, the religious leaders, were hating him. They felt some angst about that, no doubt. To make matters worse, as he's sharing this Lord's Supper with them, they're all around the table having a meal with their best friend. And he says, hey, just so you know, one of you is going to betray me. And so now I'm like, what? So you're going to be arrested because of one of us? Like, one of, in our circle here, one of the 12 of us, we're, I mean, we're tight. We've been living life together for three, like one of us? And then shortly after that, the disciples get in an argument about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus tells them, look, guys, this isn't going to turn out well, basically. He says, hey, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And Peter's like, Jesus, I'm ready to die for you. Jesus is like, Really? By the time the rooster crows this morning, you will deny me three times. And then Jesus goes on to tell them, hey, get ready. Because remember when I sent you out by two, everything was good and, and God, God used you guys. You had no need, no, no need of any provision. Well, just so you know, the days are coming where you need to go with stuff. You need to bring things with you because you're going to be on the run. He's like, all right, let's go to the Mount of Olives. So with that on their minds, 
they show up in this garden called Gethsemane. Emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted. And here they are in Jerusalem, the very place Jesus said would be where they arrested him. They are looking through things through very human eyes, the same kind of eyes you and I look through. We look at life very plainly, and they're seeing it very plainly, and it's not looking good. In fact, when Jesus says, hey, things are going to get rough, they're like, hey, we got two swords, Jesus. Jesus is like, look, just chill, all right? And basically what he tells them, they don't quite get it, because later in the story, they pull one of those swords out. Peter was packing sheath, not packing heat, but that was, pretty, that was good. Come on, man. Come on. All right. So that's how the disciples saw the situation. But what's crazy is Jesus saw it through a different lens here, fam. It says this, he went up to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. First of all, I love that. So people who knew Jesus intimately knew that this is where he liked to chill. And Erica and I had the opportunity to go to the Mount of Olives when we were in Israel. And this Mount of Olives is a very secluded place. There's nothing magnificent about it other than the fact that we knew Jesus was there. But it's pretty much off the beaten path. No doubt why Jesus loved it. The guy who was trying to get alone. And it says even he spent time there, spent nights there. And so this is where he went, as was his custom, to pray. He went there to get alone with his heavenly Father. And when Jesus is there with his disciples, in verse 40, it says, he tells them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, all kinds of temptations, no doubt, are around them. First of all, someone's going to betray him. Peter's supposed to deny him. And they got to get their, their, themselves ready to go on the run. So Jesus is like, hey, be ready. Get prayed up. Don't enter the battle without your weapon, basically. Spiritually speaking. They took a literal. He's talking about spiritually here. Don't, don't, don't step out into this war by yourself. And then it says in verse 41 that Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and prayed. This is much of a side note, family. But isn't it crazy to you that the very Son of God, Jesus, who is God in human flesh, knew that he needed to pray? And here we are, humans in human flesh, (laughs) and so often we don't talk to God. Jesus understands something the disciples don't understand. They think he's telling them to pray. Jesus understands he's at war. Jesus understands he's at the front lines of a battle that had his eternity in the balance. Jesus understands the weight of the moment. As the way of the cross drew nearer, the weight of the cross grew heavier. And here he is at the base of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, about a stone's throw away from his disciples to get alone with his father. And he says this in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, as we read that, we're like, okay, what does he mean? What's this cup? What is the cup you're talking about? And I'm excited to tell you about this. But before I tell you about the cup, I want to tell you what happens after he prays. All right, I want you to see what goes on here. Look at verse 43. It says, then there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. So note this. After Jesus prayed, he needed strength. After he prayed. Which should be a trigger. Like, okay, what did you pray about then, Jesus? What did you mean by this cup? He needed strength after he prayed. And then it says, and being in agony, he prayed. So not only did he need strength, but he was in agony after his prayer. After his prayer. Not be, like, after his prayer, he was in agony. Hear that. 
He was struggling in his soul after his prayer. And then it says this. He began to pray more earnestly. So after he prays, he is needing strength. He's in agony. And he determines, I got to pray some more. I got to pray more earnestly, more vigilantly. There is more urgency to my prayer after I prayed the first time. And then we get this statement. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground after he prayed. Now, a lot of people wonder, okay, what does this mean here? And it could be basically one of two things that are happening to Jesus. There is actually a medical condition called hematidrosis. That is this. Basically, it's a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Scientifically speaking, there is a condition when you are under enough stress and pressure, you can burst blood vessels in your capillaries and it begins to sweat blood. So this could be a literal occurrence. Jesus was under so much agony that he began to bleed. Or maybe it is a figure of speech, a simile. He's making a comparison using the words like or as. His, his sweat was like blood. And if you ever had a, a wound, especially on your head, you know what happens. You, you get a little puncture in your forehead. That thing starts gushing, doesn't it? I got to put a little finger on it to stop it, but the minute you let it go, it just gushes. And maybe what Luke is saying, Jesus was sweating like that. His sweat was just gushing down. So whether we take this figurative or literal, one thing is true. That Jesus was in great, great grief in the garden after he prayed. Looking at the fact that he needed strength, he was in agony, he prayed more earnestly and began to sweat like blood. Now we need to say, okay, what did he say in his prayer? What what was the content of his prayer all about that gave him so much angst? Did he pray about what was ahead of him? What, what What was he thinking? Let's look at his prayer in verse 42. He says, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His entire prayer hinges on what we understand this cup to be. He says, here, I've got a cup. Take it away from me. But if it's not your will, I'll take the cup and drink it. And I hope you understand here, he's, he's not like, he doesn't have like a literal cup in his hand. He's not like, I don't want Mountain Dew, right? No, he's got something in his hand, spiritually speaking. There's something in front of him that he's about to take part in that he's like, if if I don't have to go that route, Father, there's a different way, let me take it. But if not, I'll drink that cup. What is the cup that he's talking about? Is it the pain of abandonment he's about to experience when his best friends run away from him when he gets arrested? Or is it the pain of the very fact that one of his close friends is going to be the one to turn him over? Right after this story, he sees torches walking towards the garden and a familiar face, a man named Judas. Is it that pain he's experiencing? The pain when Peter pulls out a sword to start trying to fight and cuts off a guy's ear and then runs away? Like, man, where you go, Peter? Where's John? Where's Thomas? Andrew? Where's James? Where's everybody at? I'm by myself. Is it that pain? 
We might imagine that's, that's painful. Or is it the pain of suffering? It's Good Friday, family. And one thing we know about Good Friday, it's about the cross of Jesus. What's about to happen to him after he gets arrested is torture that's untold in many ways. A kind of thing we don't know and we don't experience in our own day. He would be flogged, which means they would take a whip. They would take a, a whip with different strings at the end of it. And at the end of those strings, there would be pieces of glass and bone. And they would take that thing and whip it to his body. And they would in, enter his skin and they would yank it out to tear apart his skin. He would receive what is known as the 40 ma- uh, lashes minus one. Because 40 was essentially the death penalty. So they would give the people 39 lashes. Would it be the fact that he'd have a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe on his back and mocked with people saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Is it that suffering he's worried about? Is it the very fact that the people he created would then try to kill their creator? Is that the cup that's giving him such angst? Well, no doubt all those things were a part of it, but there is an element of that cup that we talk about here often, but we need to understand, family. As horrible as those things were, they're not as great as the other cup. The other cup that he was ready to drink. In the Old Testament, when the people of God would rebel or the nations would rebel, God would then send out his judgment on those peoples. And in the book of Isaiah 51, the prophet says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of of his wrath. Or as Jeremiah 25, 15 says, the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from the hand this cup of the wine of the wrath and make all the nations drink of it. Jesus understood something that you and I must come to grips with, family. The cup that Jesus knew he had to drink was a cup of God's wrath being poured on him. This is significant. Jesus is God, family. He is God in human flesh. Never for a nanosecond in his eternal existence, with no beginning or end, has he known anything except for perfect communion with his heavenly Father. Not for a nanosecond. Let alone for his Father to pour his wrath on him. So Jesus looks ahead and he sees that cup and this is what he says. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Jesus is like, I got to go through that? God, is there another way? Well, the question I want us to answer here is, why the wrath of God? Like, why, why, why did that have to happen? Well, in the Genesis account, in the book of Genesis, the Bible says that God tells Adam and then ultimately to Eve to not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good of evil. And God tells Adam, for in the day you eat that tree, you will surely die. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, referring to Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, what it is is this. Whenever we have sinned against God and broken God's commands, it is us shaking our fist at God saying, God, I want life apart from you. When the Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me, God's like, because I want all your allegiance. When the Bible says, make no idols, it's because he's the one true God. And if we go down the list of the Ten Commandments, we see God's standard. 
Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. God lays out his standard of perfection. And whenever you and I go anything other than his perfect, perfect standard, we deserve his punishment. And so all of humanity then stands in opposition to God, and we're in a tough place. There will be some people, even in Jesus' own day, say, hey, we keep the law perfectly. I've never done those things. And Jesus says, all right, you never murdered somebody? Have you ever hated your friend? Well, I tell you, that is as if you've murdered him in your heart. Someone said, well, I've never committed adultery. Jesus is like, okay. Have you ever lusted at a woman, lusted after a man? Have you ever done that? If so, then you have done so in your heart. Jesus ups the end. He's like, look, God's not just about the external things we do. He's about our heart condition. And then James goes on to say this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So when we read these passages, we're like, all right, God, ain't nobody escaping from this standard. I'm not getting away from that. And if you think you are, you're lying, so then you're not getting away from it either. And then the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us have missed the standard. But then the Bible also says, for the wages of sin is death. Death has to happen, family, for you and me. And I'm not just talking about ceasing to breathe. We're talking about eternal death, separation from God. This is what's at stake in the Garden of Gethsemane, family. When Jesus sees that, he's like, God, in order for me to make a way for others who are objects of your wrath right now to become your children, I've got to drink that cup, don't I? And there's no other way around it. The Bible says that all we like sheep have gone astray and turned our own way, and the Lord would lay on him, Jesus, the iniquity, the sins of us all. Man, when we look at the cross of Jesus, we realize this is what's taking place. When Jesus goes to the cross, your sin, all your shortcomings, all your failures are applied to Jesus. If you're a child of God today, don't let this be boring in your ears. Your sin was applied to Jesus. And I think we can say, man, that's great news without realizing what that meant for Jesus. That meant the perfect one had to take your imperfection. The sinless one had to take your sin. The one who was in perfect communion with his father for a moment would have to experience his father turning his back on him. In which he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the question for Jesus then is, will you take this cup? Are you going to drink it, Jesus? Are you going to follow through on the mission you came for? We know the answer to this, but I want us to feel the moment. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove the cup. We see this great tension in the Garden of Gethsemane of Jesus' divine uh, person, his, his Godness, and his humanity. His desire to be obedient to his Father and the angst of the suffering. What would he do? Would he take the cup? And I love his prayer, though. He says, Father, if you are willing. Father. See, for Jesus, 
His circumstance did not determine his relationship. God was his father, no matter how tough it got. And he knew where to run when it was tough. He ran to his father. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. But Jesus knew the answer. And from there he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours will be done. And so when we see this, we ask, God, couldn't you have thought of another way? And the answer is no. Death had to happen. Some people say, well, God the Father then was guilty of divine child abuse. He made his child go through this and did not provide another way. Which is utter ridiculousness because Jesus was never forced to do anything. And here's what I want you to hear. This is what makes Good Friday so good. As Jesus stared at all options, knowing that any option other than the one of taking the cup meant that you and I could never have a relationship with God, knowing that there's only one way to save you, to save you, to save me, there's only one way. Jesus looked at that one option, and Hebrews tells us this. It says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus looked at the cross, and he says, it's worth it because of the joy that sat before me. Jesus is like, I know what's going to happen on Sunday. Jesus is like, I know what's going to happen 40 days after Sunday. I'm going to rise to the throne of my Father, and guess what? People will come to me in my kingdom because of what I accomplished by drinking the cup. Yes. That was the joy that Jesus could look at death and say, I'm going to do it. As the way to the cross drew nearer, the weight of the cross grew heavier. But hallelujah, Jesus said, I'll drink the cup. I'll take the cross. That's why he needed the angels of heaven to strengthen him. That's why he went back and prayed more earnestly. He said, God, I need your strength, Father. This is why he was in agony. He's like, God, I, Father, I know, I know I'm going to be separated from you for a moment. I need your strength here. This is why his sweat was like drops of blood after he prayed. Because he knew the answer was, there's no other way, son. And he went to the cross for us. It says in verse 45, And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. While their Savior was at the front lines of the war, they were taking a nap. Now, in some ways, man, we can't fault them. Man. Like, like y'all, man, they're weak just like we are. They stand on clay feet just like we do. But on the other hand, I believe God gives us this to help us see something here. Family, Jesus has accomplished much at the cross. He has accomplished our salvation. The battle has been won, but in many ways, that battle still fights on. And let us not be found those who are sleeping while the battle continues. And what Jesus says, get up and pray. Get up and do my work. Don't enter into temptation. You see, because they weren't prayed up, 
What does Peter do a few verses later but pull out a sword and try to fight a battle that wasn't meant to be fought that way? You and I, because we're not prayed up, we're trying to fight battles. You're not equipped to fight. What were they doing? The disciples, Peter, James, and John were there, and they slept there, all three of them, in community, asleep. No one keeping each other accountable to pray. No one encouraging the other to step into the fight. All of them falling prey to the temptation that confronts them a few minutes later because they didn't pray. Family, let's not sleep in the battle while the battle is being waged on by others. Of course, Jesus knew what was coming. And when Judas arrived with his gang, Jesus allowed him to arrest him. He was betrayed and arrested, declared guilty for crimes he did not commit. He would be flogged, 40 lashes minus one, twisted a crown of thorns on his head, punched and told to prophesy who hit him while he was blindfolded. And on that cross, our creator was crucified. Of course, of course, on the way to the cross, the cross grew heavier, of course. But Jesus drank the cup. That old song, that old spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And as we see on that cross, Jesus took our sin. And you better believe the answer to that question, were you there, is yeah. It was you and me that put him there. It was my denying with Peter when to him Jesus stared when they crucified my Lord, yes, I was there. That was my cross on his back that bled. It was me who put that thorny crown on his head. Blood dripped from his brow, coming from his hair. Yes, it was you, and yes, it was me, and yes, it was us who was there. Those were my hands driving in those nails. That was my voice with jeering to the king of the Jews, Hail! That was my mocking, my scoffing, my railing, my sin, my shape, my guilt, my failing. Yes, I was there, and so were you. But he chose the cross and death and drank that cup so you didn't have to. Why is this a good Friday? It's a good Friday because Jesus drank the cup. And family, we know that if he had not taken that cross for us, we would be standing here, enemies of God. But we know that through Jesus, our sin was paid, and we become children of God through faith in him. Maybe you're here today, and you're not yet a child of God. I want you to know that Jesus gives an invitation to you. He invites you to believe in him. And what he says, when you believe that he died on that cross for you, and that your sin, your shortcomings, your failures were placed on him, then you could be forgiven. And you can go to bed at night knowing you stand right before God. You can lay your head in your pillow, resting, knowing that you're forgiven. You can know that you are no longer someone without an identity, but you are a child of the living God when you put your faith in Jesus. That's what Good Friday is about. That's what Good Friday is about. And then the promise of eternal life. And that's what Sunday is about. But we want you to know that becoming a child of God is one decision away. Saying, God, forgive me. 
Jesus, I believe that you died for me, and I want to live for you. And that's where it starts. And if that's your desire to do so today, and I'd love that you talk with me, talk with Pastor Jeremy, talk with any of our leaders here, or you can even just talk to God directly. You don't need a mediator other than Jesus himself. And Jesus says, come to me. That's a good Friday, family. Yeah. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And I thank you for the garden of Gethsemane. I thank you that as he knelt down before your presence, Heavenly Father, knowing what was in front of him, he chose to endure the cross. Oh, thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that none of us would be numb to the beauties of your word. I pray that none of us would be numb to what you accomplished, Jesus. And I pray that we would all be sold out living for you, locking arms in community, not sleeping while the battle is going on. Lord, I pray we would go out there and fight against sin in our own hearts, that we go out there and fight against the divisions in our own lives. God, I pray we would go out there and speak the word of truth to people who are far from Jesus. And God, we pray that we would do this until Jesus returns. I pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's rise to our feet, family, and let's praise the name of the Lord our God forevermore.